My name is Felicia Orth. Uh, this year I'm the president of the congregation, and this morning we have a special forum speaker, James Carroll. He's a former theology professor. He's going to speak to us about the challenges of comparative religion, exploring similarities and differences. If you've seen one of his presentations before, uh, you know that it's uh, very deep and fun and profound. Uh, if you didn't pick up one of these on your way in, I'll go uh, get some and uh, pass them out. Uh, religious typologies. Please welcome James. Thank you, Felicia. Okay. I've been told I should speak slower and enunciate more, and I will do my best. That's usually the, the criticism here, so... Okay, um, this is what I want to talk about today, and that's kind of an introduction to comparative religion, and uh, specifically what that has to do with topologies, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, almost the very first thing that people notice when they begin to study comparative religion is that you see people from all around the world, from different times, different places, doing the same things, saying the same things, and building the same things. And, and that usually strikes people. It, it's not expected. Uh, and so why is it that everybody's doing the same stuff? <clears throat> this involves the stories we tell. And I'm not going to try to do an overview of all the things that are similar. That would take, you know, that, that's the, the topic of an entire semester course. Uh, I'm just going to say they're similar. And I'll give you a few examples. The first, for example, is the stories we tell. And a good example of that is the Great Flood. It shows up in the Bible. It shows up in, in, in Babylonian mythology, in um, the Epic of Gilgamesh. And, and it shows up um, in even Native American uh, traditions. Um, the buildings we create. Um, I used to actually put up the slide on the bottom left, which is a picture of a Syrian temple, to a bunch of uh, you know, Christian students, and, uh, and we start talking about the Temple of Solomon, and it takes them usually um, five or ten minutes to notice the idol in the, in the um, Holy of Holies. This is a Syrian temple, but it looks exactly like the Temple of Solomon, from the pillars to the, to the um, altar of incense to the, the candelabra, everything, um, and, and the, obviously the floor plan of the building. Uh, instead of cherubim, you have these, these two little lions, and it, it just lines up everywhere. <clears throat> this is actually the closest parallel to Solomon. That was Tel Tayanit. This is Ain Dara, and this one's in Syria. Uh, and it probably has a floor plan that's closer to anything else that we've seen to the Temple of Solomon. Um, some other examples of buildings we create. These are pyramids. Obviously, the center one is from Egypt, but the upper right is um, from Indonesia. The bottom right is from Mesoamerica, and the two on the left are from Babylon, Mesopotamia, Iraq. And the rituals we perform, these are pictures from New Year's rituals. The upper one is uh, a Babylonian ritual, um, which has a, they actually sacrifice a goat. And then they expel the goat into the wilderness. They kill it, and then they expel it into the wilderness by uh, throwing it in a river. 
On the left is an example from Israel where they take two goats, one they kill, the other they expel into the wilderness. After putting all their sins on its head uh, by a transfer, they actually put their hands on its head. That's where we get the term scapegoat, is the, the goat that you cast out into the wilderness. And of course, the bottom right is from Egypt, the New Year's celebration said festival. And so, again, the same thing is being done in all three of these stories, from the Day of Atonement in Israel to, to Babylonian uh, and Egyptian rituals, um, and to the gods we worship, which are full of these stories of the dying and the resurrecting gods, from Jesus Christ to Horus uh, to Baal to Persephone, uh, etc. So, <clears throat> why? Once you notice that everybody's doing the same thing, and everyone's uh, doing similar rituals and building similar buildings, the, the obvious question to ask is, why is it that they're all the same? Uh, the first hypothesis, they're competing hypotheses. And again, my goal as a Unitarian is to ask questions, not answer them. Uh, but there are competing hypotheses. The first is the diffusion hypothesis. And this essentially says we all came out of Africa, and we brought our religious traditions with us, and then they evolved, and then they cross-talked as they evolved. And you can try to build a sort of family tree complete with uh, links, cross-linkings when they interact. And that creates some sort of an evolution of religious theology up to the present day. And that's called diffusion, and it's the first hypothesis, that things are the same because they diffused from a similar source. But the other hypothesis that is actually fairly common is held by the sort of people like Joseph Campbell, uh, Jonathan Haidt, although I'm not sure Jonathan Haidt would actually self-identify um, with this, but, but his, um, his hypotheses that he presents explain spontaneous generation. So whether he would uh, align with this camp or not, he's, he, he's got theories that would help us explain spontaneous generation. Uh, and, and even C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian, C.S. Lewis uh, uh, advocated some spontaneous generation uh, explanations for why similarities pop up everywhere, and he did so as a believing Christian. And so one of the points I want to make is there are different ways to look at the evidence I'm presenting. You can look at it as an atheist, like Jonathan Campbell and Jonathan Haidt would, or you can look at it as a Christian, as C.S. Lewis would. But however you look at it, uh, we, can, we can accept that these similarities exist without it challenging um, our preferred belief model. Um, so here's, here's the two um, options, diffusion, spontaneous generation, and in the atheist camp is this idea that because it diffused and came from a common source and it just kind of evolved naturally, and because it's natural, it's all man-made, and therefore there is no God, etc. This is the atheist view of diffusion. Um, the atheist kind of view of spontaneous generation is this indicates a common shared uh, psychological makeup. That would be Jonathan Haidt's sort of idea. He says that mankind shares a common social biology generated moral framework and psychology that causes us to create similar moral frameworks, similar governments, similar uh, processes of moral thinking, and similar religious traditions everywhere we go. And it's based on a, a common human psychology. <clears throat> but the believing traditions that we've got a, a kind of a a fundamentalist uh, approach would say, well, this all goes back to Adam. In other words, uh, it's diffusion, but it's diffusion from a true religion that was taught to Adam into what, uh, what one uh, Mormon scholar called doctrinal debris. And so the similarity is due to this doctrinal debris, and then when we restore the truth, it, it, you see the truth from which all these other things uh, 
broke into pieces. Um, but my favorite version of this in the, in, in the believing camp is the, that third one. God speaks to us according to our own language. In other words, you could, you could think of, um, you can think of symbolism and ritual as a language, just like English. And it diffuses, and it evolves, and all that can be natural. And yet, you could still picture a deity speaking to people and teaching them uh, within the symbolic framework that their culture provided to them. And I think that's probably, if you're going to be a believer, uh, that's probably the best way to deal with the, the similarities. It doesn't require fundamentalism, and, uh, and yet it... it accepts the similarities and the diffusion and even the evolution. Um, so, for example, one of the problems with the doctrinal debris theory is that when you see a, a, a symbol evolve along and then suddenly picked up by Israel from its later form, not its earlier forms, the doctrinal debris theory is harder to, to maintain. But the God speaking corner own language theory still works just fine. Okay, so the other way you can do spontaneous generation is Satan imitates truth. That's my favorite fundamentalist one that I like to laugh about, right? That, that all these people are having similar things because Satan is, is imitating the true tr- religion of God and, and, and doing it with Baal, and so this is all the devil's fault, right? Um, those, are the, those are my favorite um, uh, conspiracy theorists. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the lizard people and, and Satan's fault. Um, <clears throat> but, but C.S. Lewis did it this way. He, he talked about what he called good dreams, uh, almost like God is teaching people as much as truth as they're ready to have or, or giving them hints of what's coming by teaching them similarities in Baal or in Horus that point them to Christ when Christ comes. Um, and that was how C.S. Lewis uh, dealt with this similarity issue. He, he recognized it existed and he called them good dreams sent by God. So he, he thought they were actual almost revelations from God to these people, uh, not from Satan but from God himself, which is almost the opposite view. Um, but it's far more universalist, and, and I like it. Um, and then we've even got some Buddhist theories and Mormon theories that it's, it, the similarities arise spontaneously from memories from our past lives. Uh, that one's nice, too. Um, but either way, again, however you express from the atheist view or the believing view these similarities, studying them becomes extraordinarily useful from a human perspective, because wherever it comes from, this stuff either tells us about our past or eternal truth or, um, or it tells us about the, the language that helps us understand people's religious experiences and their symbols, and it may even tells us something about human psychology and about what it means to be a human being. From every religious tradition, no matter how weird or strange, there's some hint in there about what it means to be a human being and how humans interact with the world around them. And so whatever purpose to the similarities you ascribe, um, studying them, I think, becomes uh, one of the most interesting things we can do as people. I find it fascinating, and it's why I became so interested in it. All right. So once we get past the, well, there is similarity, and, and, and the many possible explanations for why there's similarity... The next question is, well, what do we do with the similarity? I mean, how do, we, how do we organize it? How do we think about it? How do we talk about it? And that's where the typologies come in, and that's where we're going to start talking about a typological approach. Um, there are two main authors that people refer to when they talk about this. The first is Joseph Campbell, and he did this sort of uh, listing of things that religions have in common when it comes to myths, So he created the typology approach for myths. 
John Lundquist is actually a Mormon, uh, but he's a really good scholar, PhD in, in anthropology, et cetera. And I don't know if it's actually archaeology or anthropology. I don't know what his PhD was in. I need to find out. Uh, I have his dissertation on my desk. We could figure that out in just a second. But uh, he also published this book by Thanes and Hudson, who like to publish kind of comparative religion documents. They have a whole library of really interesting texts called The Temple. Uh, and so that book is worth picking up. And he did the typology approach. It's sort of what Joseph Campbell did, except he did it for temples. And his view of temples is very broad. It's kind of religious houses of worship. And so uh, he has typology elements that describe the buildings we build, the rituals we perform in those buildings, and how those buildings interact with communities, all three. And so uh, his first publication was his dissertation, which is this... uh, This blue book I've got a copy of and I'm willing to, to share. Um, and in here he published a typology of ancient Near Eastern temples and he described the difficulties and troubles of a typological approach, which we'll get to in a minute. This is very open about the problems. And then in here, uh, which was a book published by uh, the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies, he published a, an article on um, uh, Far Eastern temples, Buddhist, Hindu, uh, and Chinese uh, and you kind of put those together and you get a picture of the sort of temples that people worship at and the rituals they perform around the world. Uh, and then, uh, j- just to, to, to um, be vanity a little bit uh, and talk about vanity presses just a tad, uh, the piece of paper I handed out, which if you haven't got, there should be some by the door, uh, it has a collection of the typology elements that I kind of put together. I put the Far Eastern temples together with the Near Eastern temples, and I reorganize them so that they're kind of, they follow some logical framework and flow, and I use that typology whenever I teach religious, uh, comparative religion classes, and that's the kind of the introduction handout I give my students. And I published that here. It's a student journal, actually, so I'm I admit I'm, I'm a wimpy student publisher, not a... Um, but this is, my, this is a student journal, Hagion Temenos, um, which is a um, Greek uh, reference to temples, essays on temples and sacred in the ancient Mediterranean, and I published the, the version of the methodology of the typology that you have a copy of here. Um, and if you don't, if you're watching this online or something and you need a copy, um, there's also, I'll provide a link to um, the handout online. So... Uh, That's where you can find my versions. So this is one thing you can do. In other words, once you recognize there is similarity, what you can do is you can make a list of all the things that we find in common everywhere. That seems like the first thing to do is just kind of list all the similarities. Um, And so, again, this is Joseph Campbell's. He has 17 uh, versions where you you start at home, so there's some sort of call to adventure, which causes you to cross a threshold from the known into the unknown world. You pass through the belly of a whale, some sort of almost baptism event where you pass through the waters and you commit to the journey. And now you meet the sacred, you're tempted, you're, you're, you're tried, tested. You meet the sacred feminine, you're reconciled with the sacred masculine, and then you get to return home, either having an adventure on the way out or an adventure on the way back as you're chased, depending on the story you're telling. And then you make it home, cross the threshold, and you bring the wisdom back to the regular world. And you either teach others or you have to find a way to integrate this wonderful adventure you've had out there with how to live a life, a normal, average, everyday life. And you integrate that knowledge back into your own life, and you come full circle. And that's called the hero's journey. 
This is Lundquist typology. He has a list of space, the, the, the sort of things that, that um, spatially uh, buildings of worship have in common. For example, a revealed plan. In other words, people will often claim that their temple's floor plan was revealed by God. And you'll find all sorts of texts from around the world where the God comes down and reveals the floor plan for this sacred building they're going to build. Uh, and that's just an example. Uh, sacred center, they all point you at, at this concept of a sacred center, a pole around which the world turns, and they have some indication or, or marker of the sacred center in the temple. Places of pilgrimage, trees of life, waters of life, etc. So again, we're not going to go through all the typological elements. I usually teach a class on each one. Uh, but this is, this is just to show you the sort of things that, that pop up in typologies. You also have the rites, sacrifices, votive offerings, yearly festivals, pilgrimages. And then the te- these religions coalesce around forming a community, which I think is something we use can understand, right? We're trying to create a community around these sacred principles that we hold. And they fo- in the ancient world, they formed an economic center. The rituals themselves were seen as a source of prosperity. So if you stopped the rituals, your own prosperity was called into question. They legitimized the state, and the laws were, uh, leg- were memorialized in the temple. So, for example, you have the tables of the two stone tablets of the Law of Moses kept in the Ark of the Covenant. And the people would commit to their, their political law as well as their religious law at the temple. The temple is a place where you covenanted to, to keep your political uh, law, to keep the law. Uh, we also have the, the Law Code of Hammurabi, one of the earliest law tablets known to man, which again was a, a temple artifact. It was kept in the temple. Okay. So this is the first temptation. Let's take everything and make a list of everything that, that we have in common, right? Um, that's actually kind of dangerous. So I just did it. I talked about how neat it was, and I, I spent forever publishing on it. And then we need to back up for just a second, though, and say this is a dangerous thing to do. Um, it might lead you astray. And so I want to kind of talk for the next few minutes about some of the limitations of a typological approach and what they might be. So this is my favorite analogy, and that is when all you have is a hammer, pretty much everything around you starts to look like a nail. And so when I have a typology and I'm used to it, and I'm used to fitting everything into it, what I tend to do is I find a new religious idea, and I'm like, hey, I want to interpret this. Oh, well, this is the sacred waters, and this is, and I just, I, I put it into my typology, and I think, oh, I got it. I got it all figured out. And, and that may not be how they interpreted it, right? Because a hammer may not be the right tool. And so if you want to understand <coughs> a, a religious ritual, a religious belief, or a religious building, or a religious whatever it is, in the context that the people themselves understood it, the typology may lead you way astray, far astray, because this is things we saw in common around the world, but this might be a unique case where they saw it differently. And the differences matter, not just the similarities, but, but the differences make a difference too. Um, local context matters. So let me, let me give an example from the Ark of the Covenant. Um, what you have in the upper right are two Babylonian arks, They actually were put on poles and carried around, and the actual king would sit on a throne with these two winged lions carried on poles. But if the king wasn't there, they would often put an idol on this thing, and the god would then be carried around this way. And the implication is that the gods or the kings of heaven 
And the earthly king is a king on earth whose authority mirrors on earth the God's authority in heaven. That's why they sat on the same throne. And so you have similar thrones for the earthly kings and the gods, and they have these winged lions on either side. Those are the cherubim from the Israelite Ark of the Covenant. Uh, On the bottom, you have an Egyptian example, which contained a box for a relic, and inside the box... Now, the Ark of the Covenant is a box. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, you have the tables of stone, the pot of manna, the Aaron's rod that budded, remember. But in the Egyptian box, which again is covered by these two winged cherubim, uh, is the idol. The idol would sit on a throne covered in the box. It was so sacred, you know, only the high priest could see it. So they'd carry it out for the world to see uh, in these little uh, boxes. And the boxes were shaped like a boat, Specifically because the sun you know, sails across the blue, the, the sky is blue because it's made out of water and, and the gods sail across the sky in these boats. And so as they would carry it on the poles, this is the gods traversing the heavens. Well, if I take those images and I apply them directly to the Ark of the Covenant, I'll probably make a mistake. Um, because the Israelites had slightly different conceptions of things. The differences matter as well as the similarities. Clearly, the Israelites are borrowing these images from their pagan neighbors. But what did they mean to the Israelites? And, and they meant something slightly different. For example, you'll notice one difference. There is no statue of the deity anywhere. So if you turn to the biblical story, trying to find in the text the, the reason for the lack of the idol... It's because the Israelites believe theirs is the only God, and they say that no idol could adequately represent God. He's too transcendent. So we don't use statues to represent God. And they say, we don't need a statue because our God is so cool. He actually appears. But God would appear, it says, between the cherubim on this ark is the way the text describes it. And so that's uh, the same as the Babylonian king, except they believe that God actually physically appeared there. So you don't need an idol to represent God because our God actually is real and appears to us between the cherubim instead. There is one other hint of what this meant to the Israelites, and that's in the Genesis story where it says Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. That image is the same word used to describe idols. And so the myth that the... Egyptians told is an interesting one. It was that originally mankind were slaves to God in heaven, and we would wash, clothe, anoint, feed, the sort of things house servants did for their masters, the gods. That was our job. We'd wash, clothe, anoint, and feed the gods. But, but mankind got sick of being slaves, so there was a slave revolt. And we revolted against our masters, and the gods said, well, if you don't want to serve us, that's fine. You can go to earth and take care of yourself. And you'll have to earn your bread by the sweat of your own brow, and now you're going to work forever to wash, clothe, and feed yourself because you're going to be hungry and tired and food. And, and when mankind got to the earth, we realized something. Dang it, we had it better off when we were up in heaven taking care of the God. We were better as slaves. You notice, by the way, the slave motif that shows up in, in the Exodus story. Slaves in Egypt, right? So we were better off as slaves to the gods. We don't want to be free. And so what they did was they built a statue of the god because they were cast out of the god's literal presence. They would build statues of the god that they knew, by the way, wasn't actually god. They weren't stupid. And they built statues of the god, and they would wash, clothe, anoint, and feed the statue. And the implication is, you know, we really are sorry. <laughs> we, we wish we were back there washing, clothing, and anointing, and feeding you, but we, we're not, so we're going to wash, clothe, and anoint, and feed your statue, and maybe that will cause you to look favorably upon us and make the rains come, and yada, yada. Okay, so that's the, the Egyptian version. The Israelites are the Egyptians' neighbors, 
And if you believe the Exodus, they came from Egypt. Uh, there's probably some truth to, to that story, um, that they came from Egypt. At least some of them, some escaped slaves probably came from um, Egypt. Um, and so what do they do when they get, well, they build something that looks an awful lot like an Egyptian temple. They even put their little ark in there, but they make it slightly different. They have no statue. And we are told that the actual ritual, and the rituals they perform in this temple involve washing, clothing, anointing, and feeding each other. And so there is uh, something that, that Jesus expresses this idea in the law when he says, you know, uh, if you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. In other words, the proxy for the Israelite deity isn't a statue. The proxy that you wash, clothe, anoint, feed, and serve in order to gain favor with God, is your neighbor, your fellow man. And so by, by making it the same and making it slightly different, the Israelites intended to convey a certain message. And my point is, the local context, whenever you interpret a symbol and you want to understand it, how they understood it, the local context matters. And the differences between what they're doing and the local context matter as much as the similarities. And if you spend all your time staring at the similarities, you will miss the differences. And some of those differences are significant. So this is just an example of that sort of thing. Another criticism that's often... Now, Joseph Campbell is really famous. I mean, in, in popular circles, he influenced George Lucas and Star Wars and explicitly... I mean, George Lucas said, I read Joseph Campbell. It was so cool, I made a movie about it, right? Um, it's been very popular, very influential. But if you look at the scholarly kind of reaction to Joseph Campbell, it was kind of cold. Um, the, the, the scholar's approach to comparative religion didn't much appreciate Joseph Campbell, and, and to, to some extent for good reason. The first is he, he didn't really um, give sufficient credit to the scholars who came before him. Um, but he did popularize their ideas. But by doing so, he, he did it without... I'm giving sufficient credit, they think. Um, the other problem is, this story is so general. In other words, if, if I make a, a typology that fits every single story I could possibly tell, that's completely useless and meaningless because it doesn't tell us anything. Or you could look at it from the other perspective and say, it tells us everything. It's so general because every single human story you can tell fits this pattern. That tells us something important about being human. That's the comeback. But the, the, the caution is, if you make something so general, it fits everything, and maybe it tells you nothing. So it either tells you everything or tells you nothing, depending on your perspective. Um, but it is really general. I mean, you, you start somewhere, you get kicked out to have an adventure, you have an adventure, you're either, and there's something you want at the bottom that, that's the goal, and you either have an adventure getting the goal, or you have an adventure escaping with the goal, and then you go home. Is anyone surprised that that fits every single story you could possibly tell? So your homework is to go home and take Joseph Campbell's topology and apply it to Pride and Prejudice. I promise you can do it, right? And make a list of all the ways in which Pride and Prejudice illustrates <coughs> Lundquist's topology. Or not Lundquist, sorry, Joseph Campbell's topology of myths. <coughs> and you can do it, I promise. 
right? You can, you can fit it in there from, from the belly of the whale down to the return and, and the goal of marriage and the sacred marriage, the whole, the, the reconciliation with the father and the, and the, the encounter with them. It's all in there, right? <clears throat> okay, the other really good criticism of Joseph Campbell is that he was enamored of Sigmund Freud. And this isn't his fault. It's, it's a function of when he lived, uh, when Joseph Campbell lived, Sigmund Freud was the I Ching of, of psychology. And he wanted to understand how these similar religious traits that pop up everywhere teach us about truths about human psychology, which is exactly what I want to do. Right? But, humans, but psychology has moved a long ways past Sigmund Freud. And if you read Here with a Thousand Faces, it's all about Sigmund Freud, which means it's all about wanting to have sex with your mother. Right? I mean... Uh, you know, that, that's a straw man, really, for, for, for Sigmund Freud. But, but Sigmund Freud was obsessed with certain elements of human psychology, elements that maybe are even accurate. But human psychology is a lot more complicated than that, and it's about more than just this. Right? I mean, there is an aspect in which, when we're children, we sometimes are frustrated by the attention the father takes away from us, from our mothers, the father gets a lot of attention. My son is always frustrated that I get to sleep with, with my wife, and he has to sleep in his own room, right? And, and he's, he's frustrated about it. Yeah. Poor kid, you know, I feel bad for him. Um, but there is some sort of way in which that frustration is real. Sigmund Freud is right. And there's also an element in which we need to be initiated. There's something about human psychology that loves initiation and that loves marking milestones, Right? And when you live at home, you're attached to your parents. And this moment when you, you get up off of your couch and you say, I am an adult, you leave your parents' home, you go out into the world, and you're reconciled to the adult community, and you leave the childhood's community behind, and you reconcile yourself to the adult community, and now you're an adult in a different mode of being, a different world of living. And Campbell saw that in every single story ever told. Um, and, and there's probably some elements of that in every story ever told. The caution is, that's not the only thing going on. And every story isn't necessarily about that. There are other things to look at, other things to think about. And again, this is the problem of when you, all you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail, and, and Campbell's hammer is Freud. And so we need to be a little bit cautious about that, I think. Um, to, to really illustrate this point... Uh, I actually have this article, so if you want it, um, I will try to scan it and, and send it to you because it is in kind of an obscure place. But it's Thomas Hornsby Farrell, Freud, Football, and the Marching Virgins. It's from Reader's Digest in 1974, so it's an old thing. But dang it, this is one of the funniest things I have ever seen in my entire life. And what he essentially does is he takes the, uh, the, the topology, the sort of thing you see in Lundquist and the sort of thing you see in Joseph Campbell, and he applies it to football. And he says the entire point of football is to take the, the egg of summer and march it across the, the white lines of winter uh, to, uh, to, to you know, bring back fertility to the land, accompanied by the dancing marching virgins and the high priests in their striped black and white robes. It's great. I mean, it's one of the funniest things you'll ever read in your life. But it should illustrate a, a, a point of caution. I'm pretty sure that's not what football is actually about. <clears throat> At least I'm pretty sure that most people who go to football games don't think that's what it's about. Um, and so if you want to understand something, 
from the context of the participants of the time, the typology approach can lead you far astray. And if you don't believe that, read this article, right? Because this is exactly what we're doing. We, we, we as scholars, will we'll pick up um, a, a temple from, from you know, uh, Nahum somewhere in the Mediterranean or something, and we'll take the floor plan and we'll say, ah, well, this is about, and we start guessing what it's all about, and we apply this typology to it, and for all we know, we're off in Never Never Land. And so this should provide a certain amount of humility and, and caution to the typological approach. Uh, Freud football and the, and the marching virgins. So if you want a copy, you send me an email, I'll, I'll send it to you. This is one of the funniest things you'll ever read. At least I think it is. All right. <coughs> so now that we've had all those cautions, why in the world would you bother to do this? Um, I taught religion at BYU, and I taught a class specifically on this subject. Um, I was a co-teacher with uh, Stephen Ricks, uh, uh, and, and he's a, a researcher of this type who does this sort of typology thing. Um, and I did this at BYU for many years. And what I noticed in my students is that when I gave them a typology, and I started the class going through each element of the typology and showing them many examples, then I would back up and I would say, okay, now let's talk about ancient Egypt. And they would see something from ancient Egypt, and they'd go, aha, that's the, that's the marriage fertility thing, and they would remember it. So there's something about how human memory works, especially when it comes to introductions to topics. Um, have you ever met somebody who, like, knows baseball statistics? And I mean, like, knows them. Like, you, you, he'll tell you the batting average of Ty Cobb off the top of his head, and you're like, how in the world do you know all those numbers? I mean, they're just random, meaningless numbers, and yet you have them all memorized. How do you do that? So do these people have a super memory? I don't think that's what it is. I don't think they have a super memory. They have what I call memory hooks, and that's association. Our memories work by association with memory hooks. So as a teacher, the typology approach was really useful because it provided the memory hook. Let me give you an example. So let's say I tell you the batting average of so-and-so baseball player is such-and-such. I'm not going to make up numbers because I don't even know how to make up rational numbers for that, right? But, um, and, and let's say I tell that to a person who's never heard that batting average before. And he says, ah, that's two more than Ty Cobb, you know, three less than Babe Ruth. I, I'm never going to forget that. And he did it in his, in his you know, rookie year. I'm never going to forget that number. And the reason he never forgets it is because it's two more than Ty Cobb and three less than Babe Ruth or, you know, whatever it is. And he's got it. Or she. Um, they've got that fixed in their head, and they'll never forget it again. So it's, it's kind of a, 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 a a problem of, of uh, chicken and the egg, but it means that the more you know about this, a subject, the easier it is to learn more about it. Sometimes we think, I'm not very good at this, and I'm really good at this. And the truth is, the more you know about a subject, the easier the subject becomes, because you have more and more other related concepts to hang each new concept on in your memory. <clears throat> and so that means sometimes if you just muscle through the beginning, subjects that you thought were hard will become easy to you. What, what is easy may just be a function of your own exposure, not your own uh, predilections. And what that means as a teacher of comparative religion is that um, I feel like the typologies, even when they don't apply, as long as we teach them with the cautions that should go with them, um, they provide an excellent introduction 
and they, they set all these memory hooks that then become useful in going on. Because now we can talk about the similarities, and then when I point out a difference, that's significant too, because they already know most religions have this association with the sacred waters, and if I tell them this religion doesn't, they're like, oh, that's kind of weird, and they remember it. Right? So the typology is a useful teaching tool, for kind of first and foremost, from my perspective. Um, but also, if if... If your goal is to understand how that person at that time understood that religious ritual, I said that's the place where the typology might lead you astray. But what if you're much more interested in what this religious idea that shows up over and over again tells us about human psychology and and the human condition, which, by the way, is the whole purpose for me of comparative religion. If that's your goal, and that is certainly mine, then the typology approach is is the I Ching. I mean, it's, it's what it's all about because... When you see one religion doing something weird, that might be an aberration. When you see lots of religions doing something that everyone else does, that's an, that's an issue that you should pay attention to if you're interested in human psychology, from my perspective. And so this really does, I think, provide a window into human, the human condition, a useful one. Let me give you an example. This one's from water. So if you notice number five, you have the belly of the whale. This is also baptism, that sort of thing, uh, in the mythology from Joseph Campbell. But you also have sacred spaces where the temple is connected to the waters of life. Usually they're connected to the primordial landscape, the waters from which the world emerged and was created, and the sacred rivers from Eden, etc. You also have these ritual initiations from from the Jewish mikveh. Well, I've got pictures here. Uh, At the top left, this is the laver from the temple of uh, Tabernacle of Moses. Uh, to the right of that is a bunch of Hindus washing in the river Ganges. To the right of that, we have some Egyptians pouring sacred water on an initiate as part of his initiation. The two gods are, are Mat and, and Anubis pouring the water on the initiate. And the water is drawn as little pictures of Ankhs, meaning uh, the hieroglyph for life. So by being clean, you find life. Um, you got the Muslim, Tayamun. I don't know actually how to say that. Tayamumu. I ought to know how to say that. It's really embarrassing that I don't. But this is the, the Muslim ritual washing, that if you do, you do it with water, but if you don't have water, you can do it with sand. And, of course, on the bottom right is Christian baptism. And, and we could also do, you know, the, the uh, Israelite passing through the Red Sea, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We, on and on and on and on, this idea of sacred water. It's everywhere. This is one of those things that is kind of a religious universal. Um, so what window does it give us to the human condition? If I do a little bit of um, sociobiology with E.O. Wilson sort of approach, uh, maybe some Jonathan Haidt, who's the, the picture here, and try to say, well, how would they you know, maybe see this? Jonathan Haidt proposes that we have moral foundations built by evolution and into our human psychology, and we apply them to our moral foundations, and that creates not only our religious uh, moral presumptions, but our political ones as well. Um, you know, why is it that, um, and I, I apologize for this example, but it's the example Jonathan Haidt gives. He gave a survey about, and he asked a bunch of people, you know, if you have sex with a, with a dead chicken, is, is that morally right or wrong? And everyone said, that's wrong, that's wrong. And, and it was interesting because the people who said it was wrong and the people who said, well, if the chicken is dead and no one cares, it's fine. It doesn't hurt anybody. Right? The people who did that were all the well-educated college students. And, and what they were doing is they were saying, well, does it hurt somebody if it doesn't? That's okay. And when you took it to kind of the less educated kind of random dude on the street, their first response is, that's disgusting. Ergo, it must be wrong. 
And then you ask them why it's wrong, and they start making stuff up. They've got to come up with a reason why it's wrong. They don't know why it's wrong. It doesn't hurt anybody, but it's got to be wrong because it's disgusting. And he, he was really interested in this, and he studied it. How, do, how is it that disgust plays into our concepts of religion and morality? And what Jonathan Haidt proposes is that <clears throat> there are certain things that are disgusting because they can make us sick, right? And it turns out that that, can, that uh, disgusting stuff is contagious. If you touch something that's disgusting, even if your hands don't look disgusting, you were contaminated by it. And if you have a, a, a um, psychological compunction to wash whenever you touch something that feels disgusting, you will out-survive your competitors. It's an evolutionary drive to wash in the face of that which is disgusting. And to find that which is disgusting wrong and that which is not disgusting right, morally and ethically, and to respond to it by washing, even if it's unrelated to germs, because you know, your evolution and your human psychology doesn't even know what a germ is. It's just trying to create a sense of disgust and a, and a drive to wash. So when you're ethically disgusted by something, you do psychologically the same thing you do when you are physically disgusted by something that could make you sick. That is, you wash. And so the way Jonathan Wilson would interpret this this, uh, compunction to washing across every religious community across all ages of time is that this is part of a human, moral, psychological foundation, a desire to wash in the face of disgust. And then if you study what people find disgusting, you find the roots of their moral thinking. In fact, what they find disgusting is often... uh, predominant in what they will describe as right and wrong, irregardless of any logical argument against it. In fact, you'll find this as a reference in when you start, if you, if, you, if you talk to religious fundamentalists about homosexuality, and you're trying to describe especially male homosexuality as something that is not morally wrong, they will come up with reasons for why they think it's wrong. And those reasons are what we call confabulation. That's not the real reason they think it's wrong. The real reason they think it's wrong is because they're disgusted by it. In, in as much as we are naturally disgusted by poop. And so the idea is physically disgusting to them, so they come up with reasons why it's wrong, even if you tell them all the reasons why it's right. And so I think that's an important concept to have when we understand our political disagreements, our religious disagreements, and what it means to be human is that we're making up reasons often that are actually driven by our inner sense of what is disgusting and what is not. And that's also why we're busy with all these rituals of washing, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I want to be careful in the sense that I, I'm, I'm providing that observation not to tell you that, that you have to be an atheist, that this is all just an evolutionary thing. I mean, if, if there is a God who is dealing with humankind who have this evolutionary compunction, he would be stupid not to speak to us according to those concepts and have rituals of washing that he would then, he or she or whatever deity you believe in, would then present to us. So I'm not telling you that in, in, as, a, as evidence for not believing in God, although if you're an atheist, that fits very well. If you're a theist, you shouldn't shy away from this interpretation is what I'm saying. This interpretation can fit very well with a theist perspective as well. So in other words, whether you're an atheist or a theist, I think w- that we should maybe take these sorts of concepts seriously because I think they tell us something about being human, whether or not you're a believer in deity. Um, so that's it. And we're, we're just about to run out of time. So 
Do you, do you have any questions? I'm willing to take about two minutes and answer questions, and then I need to turn it over to John so he can get ready for the sermon. So does anyone have uh, questions or thoughts? Or we've even got microphones if you want. And if there are more? Okay, so that's a good point. Um, I really tailored this talk as the first lecture in my comparative religion class that I taught. I mean, I based it on that first lecture. So if this is interesting to you, this is what I do in that Friday class. And if you can't come to a Friday class, I record those, and I'm recording this one too, and I put them on my YouTube channel, and you're welcome to watch them you know, uh, offline if you can't come. Uh, I'm also willing to have a quick survey, by the way. Uh, if I did the class on, fr- I'm going to give you two options because I'm willing to move my class around, and I've got people here who maybe want to come. So um, I want to compare Friday, after- Friday evening with Saturday evening. And, and can you guys, would you guys help me out with that with a quick show of hands? If there was a class and you wanted to come to it, and it was on Friday evening, would that work best for how many? Okay. How many would have Saturday work best? Okay, so Friday wins. I guess we can stay on Friday. I apologize for that. But if, if you can't come, again, I'm recording these, and, and this is what they're about. If you're ever curious what I, what I talk about in my classes, it's this stuff. I then go into individual details. So, for example, the next one is going to be about alchemy. And we'll talk about the stories people tell about how to get eternal life. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about that as a typological element, and then we'll talk about alchemy as a specific example. Last time we did the Holy Grail as a specific example, and this time we're doing alchemy. Uh, so that's, uh, that's what the class is about. And then after I teach that class, we're going to have one on Unitarian and then another one on Universalist history. So we'll have two on Unitarian and Universalist history, um, and then I'll come back, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly where we're headed after that, but we've got alchemy and then Unitarian history and then something else. I'm not sure where we're going to go. And that class is usually on the third Friday. I didn't have it this last Friday because I was sick. I apologize, but we'll have it next month. Any other comments, questions? Okay, thank you very much.